गुड मॉर्निंग एवरीबडी आई स्नेग्ध शर्मा आई एम गोइंग टू प्रेजेंट द हिंदू एडिटोरियल डेटेड एट दिसंबर टू थाउजेंड ट्वेंटी दिस पॉडकास्ट इज फॉर दोज हु डू नॉट हैव टाइम टू रीड न्यूज पेपर दैम सेल्स द एनालिसिस ऑफ द एडिटोरियल इज गिवन ऑन द लास्ट सेगमेंट ऑफ द पॉडकास्ट लेट्स गेट स्टार्टेड हैप्पी प्रिपरेशन The very first article of the day is a do it for India's urban women. Public works could provide valuable support to the urban poor, especially if women get most of the jobs. This article is written by Jane Dresey. The COVID-19 crisis has drawn attention to the insecurities that haunt the lives of the urban poor. Generally, they are less insecure than the rural poor. partly because a fallback work is easier to find in urban areas if only pulling a rickshaw or selling snacks still the urban poor are exposed to serious contingencies both individuals such as illness and underemployment and collective that is lockdown floods uh, cyclones financial crisis and so on there is thus a need for better social production in urban areas there are not many options Universalizing the public distribution system in urban slums would be a step forward and it can be done under the National Food Security Act but food rations do not take people very far employment based support is one way of doing more it has two major advantages self targeting and possibility of generating valuable assets or services a simple proposal there has been much discussion in recent months of a possible urban employment guarantee act the nuts and bolts of the act however are not so clear and we have little experience of relief work in urban areas further it takes some optimism to expect a national urban employment guarantee act to materialize in the current political climate a stepping stone would help some time ago i had proposed an urban employment scheme called decentralized urban employment and training that is duet briefly it would work as follows the government state or union would issue jobs job stamps each standing for one day of work at the minimum wage the job stamps would be liberally distributed to approved public institutions such as universities hostels schools hospitals healthcare museums libraries shelters jails offices uh departments railway stations transport corporation public sector enterprises neighborhood associations and urban local bodies these associations institutions would be free to use the stamps to hire labor for odd jobs and small projects that do not fit easily within their existing budgets and system wages paid by the government would go directly to the workers account against job stamps certified by the employer to avoid collusion an independent placement agency would take charge of assigning workers to employers this approach would have various advantage activating a multiplicity of potential employers avoiding the need for special staff facilitating productive work among others it would also ensure that workers have a secure entitlement to minimum wages and possibility other benefits there is no doubt of possible do it jobs many possibilities are mentioned in azim premji university's blueprint for an urban employment guarantee app further many states have a chronic problem of dis, uh, dismal maintenance of public uh, premises 
Duet could provide a first line of defense against it. Some projects may require a modest uh, provision for material expenditure, but that seems doable. To work well, Duet would have to include some skilled workers that are masons, carpenters, electricians and such that would widen the range of possible jobs. It would also help to impart a training component in the scheme. Workers could learn skills on the job as they work alongside a skilled worker. Roping in skilled workers, however, will take some efforts. They tend to get a fair amount of work in urban areas and to earn relatively good wages. Aside from prompting a lot of useful and mostly enthusiastic feedback, when it was placed in the public domain, the Duet proposal was the subject of a recent symposium by Ideas for India, where many eminent economists shared valuable thoughts and doubts. I am told that the left democratic front in Kerala has included it in the election manifesto of forthcoming local election. Of course, many practical issues are likely to arise in the design of the scheme, but the idea seems worth pursuing at least. Women first. Here is a variant of do it that merits special consideration. How about giving priority to women workers? I'm not thinking of minimum quota for women, like the one-third quota under the Narega, but of an absolute priority. As long as women workers are available, they get all the work. In fact, women could also run the placement agencies or the entire program for that matter. To facilitate women's involvement, most of the work could be organized on a part-time basis, say few hours, four hours a day. A part-time employment options would be attractive for many poor women in urban areas. Full-time employment tends to be very difficult for them, especially if they have young children. Wage employment for a few hours a day would be much easier to manage. It would give them some economic independence and bargaining power within the family and help them acquire new skills. Remember, the economic dependence of women on men is one of the prime roots of gender inequality and female oppression in India. Giving priority to women would have two further merits. First, it would reinforce the self-targeting feature of do it because women in relatively well-off households are unlikely to go or be allowed for casual labor at the minimum wage. Secondly, it would promote women's general participation in the labor force. India has one of the lowest rates of female workforce participation in the world. According to the National Sample Survey data for 2019, only 20% of women, urban women in the age group of 15 to 59 years spend time in employment and related activities on an average day. This is a loss not only for women who lives at the mercy of men, but also for society as a whole. Insofar as it stifles the productive and creative potential of almost half of the adult population. I would add on a more tentative note that giving priority to women and may help and putting them in charge may help to prevent corruption. If wages are paid directly to the workers account, siphoning, do it funds off would require collusion with workers, a real or dummy. Women may be more reluctant than men to participate in a scam, if only out of fear. Try it out. A moot question remains. Will the public institution concerned make active use of the job stamps? Think of a head of a university department who sees that wall needs whitewashing. It would not take much initiative for her to reach for the job stamps and get the job done. Still, it is easier to do nothing. 
This is where there is a big difference between do it and the service a voucher schemes that have proved so popular in some European countries. The service vouchers are much like job stamps except that they are used by household instead of public institutions. For the purpose of securing domestic services such as cooking and cleaning, the service vouchers are not free, but they are highly subsidized and household have an incentive to use them since their way of buying domestic services very cheap. In the do-it scheme, the use of job stamps really relies on a sense of responsibility among the heads of public institution, not their self-interest. It is thus not easy to guess how intensively job stamps will be used. The best way to find out is to give the scheme a chance. As it happens, that can easily be done by a way of pilot scheme in select districts or even municipalities. There's nothing to lose. If do-it does not work, we shall learn from it at least. The second article of the day is the ground has fallen out from beneath the farmer's feet. The farm acts are farmer unfriendly and in violation of important constitutional safeguards. This article is written by a very beloved KTS Tulsi and Tanesa Puri. Amidst the novel coronavirus pandemic, Indian farmers have marched their way to New Delhi. The reason behind the protest is a request to repeal the recently passed Empowerment and Protection Act, Agreement of Rights Assurance, Farmers Produce Trade and Commerce Promotion and Facilitation Act, and Essential Commodities Amendment Bill, akin to stock trading. All three of these laws are palpable attempts to turn the activity of buying and selling farm produce into a form of stock exchange trade. However, the secret to successful farming has been in the hard handiwork of toil, rather than the ability to operate computers and nitpick along contractual ticks, both of which the Farm Act seems to impute in the lives of a farmer. First, the acts have been passed by the centre. However, agriculture remains a matter under the purview of the state list. The centre has no jurisdiction to rule over agriculture even under the concurrent list and so quite clearly there is an attempt to observe powers explicitly given to states under entries 14, 18, 46, 28 of the state list by the center. These acts lack a legal framework in the way that they came into existence. Additionally, the acts deprive states of their revenue via any cess or levy. Therefore, these acts are a challenge to the separation of powers within function as a backbone to a democracy more cost possible. Secondly, in the way that the acts change all kinds of farming trades into digital contractual terms reveal how there is an attempt to selling at selling the farmer's produce in a language that the farmer himself does not know. This lack of skill, knowledge and expertise will provoke farmers into hiring middlemen and thereby increasing the operational cost for the farmer. Additionally, when such contracts are signed with the multinational companies, farmers shall either be forced into paying hefty fees to lawyers or to be able to dissect such contracts for them, or in alternative, open the floodgates of their exploitation at any time by such companies. Legally, all of this interferes with the freedom of farmers to carry out their own trade, Article 19.1.F. By imposing such fetters in the way that they, the farmers earns his livelihood, there is a thread under Article 21 as well. This will only deny a decent standard of living by interfering in a way such that living is earned by the farmer, impringing on Article 43 of the DPSP.
gaps and definition third there are two particularly problematic definitions within the acts when these acts define the term farmers they exclude the cropper laborer terrier etc the impact of this is that certain persons involved in producing crop are systematically excluded from the purview of the act this shall in turn hinder any rights that they might have gained access to via the acts while defining a farming while defining defining a farming agreement rather than bestowing power to the farmers a sponsor has such powers in the absence of any necessity on his part to give reasons to the farmer behind such a refusal this sponsor is also in charge for checking legal compliance this means that all legal blind terms are open to legitimate exploitation by such sponsors fourth the acts mandate trade to occur when the produce is of mutually acceptable quality grade and standard the question here is the battle to secure mutually acceptance what extent of exploitation are we willing to overlook from environmental to labor to the farmer's own in the an attempt to secure produce of a mutually acceptable quality there is every possibility that the farmers might be pressured into overusing his land either by excess pl- plantation or by or by excessive use of chemicals thus making it vulnerable to be becoming barren moreover the quality check in such cases is said to be done by a third party this power has been given to a third party without any safeguards against such parties biases or prejudices the unashamed misuse of the farmers and his resources to merely food the coffers of a random multinational company is visible at a bare pursual of such a provision in the acts fifth the acts and the dispute resolution provisions fail to lay down who can represent the parties involved in such a dispute the act goes on to then to overburden an already overworked subdivision magistrate in the absence of such a conciliation process elucidate in the farming agreement no right to appeal and finally the most inhuman all provisions are those that take away the right of appeal from farmer the state exercising its power so multiple bureaucrats seems to have elevated itself into the status of god himself whose decisions are immune from challenge there is glaring absence of any power being given to the farmers in the event that the decision delivered by the above authority is biased a product of corruption prejudice or simply a manifestation of the said authority's bad mood we must commemorate the access to justice accorded by the constitution article 18 article 14 and 21 at this juncture apart from this the act use multiple subjective terms such as extraordinary circumstances extraordinary prices even words such as horticulture produce and non perishable agriculture foodstuffs are used so carelessly that they open up contract to multiple disputes over interpretation clearly the act seems to defy the safeguards that the makers of the constitution created it to stand for third article of the day is rebuilding from debris bidden will have to heal the wounds of a nation that seems to be at war with itself 
US President Joe Biden has officially secured enough certified reserves across states to cross the critical threshold of 270 electors in the Electoral College. That all but guarantees that he will be the 46th president. While there is lingering but near zero chance of incumbent President Donald Trump overturning the results through legal challenges targeting mail-in ballots, it may be safe to assume that the Electoral College will carry out. On December 14, an uncontroversial confirmation that the Biden-Harris ticket won the 2020 presidential election and that the Biden administration will take charge after Inauguration Day next month. However, there is little doubt that seeing the bitter 2020 election campaign through the victory is but the start of what is to show to an arduous journey for Mr. Biden, who at 78 will have to work tirelessly towards two goals. First, to undo the damage or done over four years to domestic and international institution alliances, strategic goals, and second, to heal the bitter polarization of American politics along partisan lines, a phenomenon that appeared to peak through the harsh Trump years. At the top of the domestic policy agenda will be combating the catastrophic effect of the COVID-19 pandemic in the US, which has recorded uh, the most infection uh, cases globally and highest fatalities too. The science-driven policy that Mr. Biden has promised to follow must be expediently put into action for everything from mask-wearing mandates to an effective vaccine distribution plans. The economy will be a close second requiring even more stimulus package backed by Congress that kickstart the flagging job market and incentive businesses to start humming into activity again. On the international front, Mr. Biden is likely to use his first 100 days in office to explore what options there are to join WHO and Paris climate change agreements. This could signal the end of the era of Trumpist isolationism on the global stage. He is also likely to train his guns on immigration reform, an area in which Trump administration ripped a gash through the earlier paradigm of gradual adjustment to new realities. That could will include lifting Mr. Trump's executive orders, restricting the issuance of new skilled workers' visas and green cards, as well as limits on entry for students at universities' offers, mainly online courses. Family separation at U.S. southern borders may halt, perhaps substituted by Obama year's policy of catch and release, and the borders wall that Mexico was supposed to pay for will be indefinitely shared. Yet none of these reversals of Mr. Trump's policies will matter if Mr. Biden does not proactively seek to build bipartisan consensus in Congress and across the country. The fact that the US was driven by hateful discourse from both sides of the political spectrum throughout the 2020 campaign suggests that Mr. Biden will have to work over time to heal the wounds inflicted on a nation that at time appears to be at war with itself. Transparency is vital. Safety and efficacy data must be known before emergency use of authorization for vaccine. A day after Pfizer sought the Indian regulator's note for emergency use authorization for its mRNA vaccine, the Pune-based Serum Institute of India has approached the regulator for a similar note for its vaccine, Covishield, developed by Oxford University. Unlike Pfizer, AstraZeneca, which is carrying out the phase 3 trials of the Oxford vaccine in four countries, is yet to secure a note from any of the regulatory agencies. AstraZeneca recently gave details of interim safety and efficacy data involving 131 COVID-19 cases in the phase 3 trials in the UK and Brazil. But details of the trials in India are not yet out. 
The unprecedented speed in taking the vaccine from the development stage to approval stage in less than a year is remarkable and perhaps necessitated by the toll the virus has taken on lives and livelihood. But this is not without cause for concern at a time when governments are putting pressure on regulatory bodies fast track the entire processes. Lack of transparency about vaccine safety and efficacy does no good in gaining people's confidence and willingness to get vaccinated. While Moderna, Pfizer and AstraZeneca took the extraordinary steps of public sharing the trial protocol the time points at which interim analysis of phase 3 trial in india will be carried out for safety and efficacy is unclear while the us fda has clearly spelled out at least 50% efficacy and stipulated a median follow up duration of at least 2 months after completion of the full vaccination regimen to access a vaccine's benefit risk profile for emergency use approval no such conditions have been mentioned in the indian regulatory agency the phase 3 trial of covishield began on september 21 and completed the enrollment on november 12 prime minister narendra modi announced a few days ago that the vaccine would be available in the next few weeks bringing some cheer in an otherwise desolated scenario the sooner vaccine is available the better is for everyone but pushing through an effective of unsafe vaccine is worse than not having one a survey of the london based vaccine confidence project revealed that um, though the intent to get vaccinated was 87% 34% responded were worried about side effects while 16% were concerned about fast moving trials while the indian government is aware of vaccine hesitancy among a certain section of people the concerns are best addressed when all stakeholders are transparent at every stage and not by merely sharing guidelines regarding vaccine safety with the states it is important that these uh, those seeking emergency use authorization share the safety and efficacy data immediately